Recovery Radio, where we discuss substance abuse treatment and recovery. You can listen live at blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG radio. Please note that the views and opinions of our hosts and guests are not necessarily the views of OCG, nor is it meant to replace professional advice or the advice of your physician. And now, here's our show, Roach on Recovery, with your host, Orville Roach. We are, we are back. We are back like that. How about them Cowboys? Oh man, it feels good to be back. Your your co-host here, your loyal co-host. We've got our host, uh, Mr. Roach himself, uh, and and I couldn't help but this is perfect timing. Beginning of the NFL season to hop into another show and uh, already hit our our resident Cowboys fan with a little jab about his starting quarterback. Uh, Mr. Host, how have you been uh, over this past four months? I think you're wrong for doing that, and the universe will get you. (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) Doing pretty good. Doing pretty good. No complaints. Good stuff. So, yeah, we got a we got a great show on tap for today. I'm excited. To, I think uh, I think we filled the audience in before we left. I don't know if it was our last show, maybe the show before, but I know we did have a show on um, kind of the preparation for a 30-day residential program, uh, what we were doing in preparation for that. I think we told them that this was coming down the pike in January. Uh, now, of course, we've had almost a a year to um, operate under that model and we'll be able to evaluate it. That's kind of the topic today. We'll be able to share that with all of you. But uh, outside of that, some other news and events that we will catch everybody up on that have taken place since the last time we had a show and looks like we got an exciting one on tap. Yep. So we had in August our 15th anniversary as our common ground. And yep, deserves it does deserve some applause. Um, obviously, you guys did a little bit different this time because I think this is only the second time in recent years that I have actually been present for the celebration. Normally I'm nowhere to be found 
for most of August. But so I was there, and it was a very it was a very nice day, um, celebratory day, uh, being the fifteenth uh, anniversary. Um, but another thing came to me about not just the anniversary, but kind of the symbolism of where we're at now with our common ground and the fact that I believe there are no more um, singular, and I'll explain what I mean by that, daytop programs left. And what I mean by singular is like daytop New Jersey was the last singular one um, standalone left and they have since closed. I do not know the story of how that and why that happened. I will find out. I promise I will find out, and um, I'm trying to track down someone who shall go unnamed to get the true Hollywood story on, on why Daytop New Jersey ended up closing. Um, I do know that the primary facility, the adolescent facility um, that was their home, um, is up for sale, if not already sold. Um, That was the facility in Mendham, New Jersey, that was owned by the nuns. That Daytop, in true form, this is true Monsignor form, uh, was leasing for $1 a year. This acres and acres beautiful facility in Mendham, New Jersey, and I was fortunate enough to visit it once in 2009 for uh, Joe Hennon's retirement ceremony. Um, so we have to get to the bottom of that. Now, why is that important? Well, I believe it's important, number one, to know the story, whatever it is. Uh, for better or worse, good, bad, or ugly. Um, And I think we now, our attitude is we're taking on the mantle of um, being the the torch carrier, the torch bearer, if you will, um, for the daytop programs. Even though that's no longer not our name, but if you've noticed, Mr. Producer, one thing, we've changed like a lot of our letterhead and all that stuff. For years, you know, the letterhead would say, our common ground, formerly Daytop California. Formerly, yeah. yeah. And, you know, once we kind of got into years seven, eight, nine, and ten, we kind of phased those things out and everything just became our common ground. Except the, the signs at the front of all of our facilities. Right. And I'm glad we never changed them because um, I, I now want there to be a link that people can visually see and and see a sign that says, "Oh, our common ground." Formerly, oh, they used to be daytop. Right, right. I was I was in Target this Saturday. Uh oh. Standing on standing online, minding my business. <laughs> and, uh-huh. I, and I. And, and of course, you know, I, I wear all of my daytop shirts proudly, and I had on a black daytop shirt. And the lady, and I'm in the self checkout line, and the lady who's manning the line, a Target employee, as I get to the fr- the next front position on the line, 
the lady looks at me and says, I know Daytop. I said, really? From where? She said, my daughter used to work for Daytop right here. Now, we're in East Palo Alto, so it, uh, she's referencing the residential facility. Yeah. Um, back, um, she said in the 80s. I said, well, in the 80s, it was New Day. We took over in 91. And she says, um, I said, who, who did she, what's, what's her name? And she said, her name, Tanya. And I said, who, who did she work with? Name some people she worked with. And she said, um, uh, Mr. Thomas. I said, oh, Larry Thomas. Larry, yeah. Okay. Um, I said, oh, okay. Uh, I said, well, we're not named Daytop anymore. We're our common ground, but we're still, you know, we're, you know we grew from that to where we are now. Um, but you know, so we had a little pleasant conversation. Um, so that's, you know, one of the reasons I just proudly always wear my Daytop shirts, because you never know. A lot more people know Daytop than they do our common ground. First of all, because Daytop has a much more, if you will, rich history. Yeah, so, yeah and, and it just casts a wider net because of its right. numerous locations. Right. Um, so I want us to be that torch carrier for Daytop um, and keep our signs with the formerly Daytop California and one of the things you know, Mr. Producer, but I'll you know, make it public to everyone else, you know, we're collecting all kinds of yeah, um, memorabilia, ar- if you will. Memorabilia and archival stuff um, from Daytop and Our Common Ground, et cetera, et cetera, wherever we can find it, whatever we find in the closet, <laughs> in the corner, under the dust bunny, whatever we find, wherever <laughs> yeah, right, we find right, it. Right, right, right. And um, what we're eventually going to do is in the facility that we actually own, uh, we're going to have, like, through, throughout the hallway, you know, we're going to put all of that stuff, find places for whatever else is on the wall, and put all of that stuff on the wall, all the pictures we have of the Monsignor, all the signs we have, all, you know, all, the, all the stuff on the wall. So people, as they walk through, uh, I don't know how much, I don't know if it'll be like a timeline thing as they walk through or just, it'll just be stuff that they can just look at and, and see and maybe have little placards underneath saying what it is, um, et cetera. Um, but if, if, if there's anything I want to ensure happens is that everyone who comes into our program learns about, knows about, and at the very least, by seeing it, asks about, you know, what is, what is Daytop? You know, what is that? Yep. Yep. And and there you have a start of a conversation. Yeah, I think that's really cool. I might you might even catch me uh fighting to to return some of the formerly Daytop California monikers to um our some of our uh, facility documents and things of that nature. Uh, I think that's it made sense to slowly but surely move away from that for various reasons when we did um, split and go our own direction. And, and now that um, time has passed and, and we know what, you know, how that story ended for Daytop uh, and us now being those torch bearers, I think, it, I think it would be cool to, um, to stay, like you said, to consciously stay attached to that history. Yep. Um, 
We got something going on this week, Mr. Producer. Our every th- three year self induced. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> What's a good way to describe? Is it torture? I don't know if it's torture. Mental yeah, torture, maybe. Sure. Yeah. Our self induced mental torture. So we, uh, for those of you who don't know, we are CARF, C-A-R-F, certified or accredited, um, all of our programs. And CARF stands for the Commission on Accreditation of Residential Facilities or Rehabilitation Facilities. I always forget which one it is. Yep. And so every three years, if you get a three-year accreditation, you can get a one-year accreditation, which is like a probationary, and you got to fix whatever it is they find and whatever. Uh, but every three years, they come in, and they review all aspects of your organization from head to toe, from the board all the way down to the maintenance office. Um, and... There's a manual, which is, I don't know, what is it, 17,000 pages? Just about. Um, And, you know, we have a person, our quality assurance coordinator, who has been a godsend for us. um, Because before her, now she started with us in 2017, and before that, all of the management team used to just take on the different aspects of this thing, to try and get it done, and it was very, um, you know, mentally stressful, if you will, because, you know, you're doing, doing whatever your regular job is, and, and then this other thing, which is ongoing, it doesn't end, it's, you know, because there's stuff you have to do all the time to show that you're doing certain things to maintain the standards, a lot of documentation, right. et cetera, et cetera. And so we decided that if we had a person who that's their job and they, and they kind of, you know, lead us, pull us around to, to, to make this happen, that that would be better. And so we hired Laura and that was her job, quality assurance coordinator. And, you know, I tell the story, I even tell it to the CARF surveyors that, you know, so she spent, she, uh, she got hired in December 2017, so she spent, from the day she got hired all the way up until October of 2019, which is when the survey happened, so a year and a half, whatever that is, preparing for the CARP survey. And, of course, she was nervous. <laughs> you to know, say, to say the least. Because this was her first time, you know, going through the process and what have you. I said, don't worry about it. I said, the, it, the, you know... I, I some, for those of you who don't know, think of an audit, but it's not really an audit because they're not auditors; they're consultants. They just, they're coming in to consult and review, like almost like a peer review of your organization, and things that they find that you can improve upon are just called recommendations. Uh, they're not deficiencies or anything like that. So we always get recommendations, and then you know you put together a plan to review the recommendations and change some things to whatever. That's it. That's all that happens. Well, unfortunately for her, fortunately or unfortunately, <laughs> first round was a little too easy. <laughs> she ended up, for, for lack of a better description, she ended up getting a perfect score. There were no recommendations. <laughs> right. And that, right. that has never, ever happened. 
Uh, oh man, the, the only only, like, only way to go from there is down. Is down. The surveyors were like, "Do you know how rare this is?" And we were like, "No, we have no idea. We've always gotten recommendations." And and when I say recommendations, it sometimes we, they're up to twenty. They're they're always in double digits. So either the high teens or the mid twenties, because they cover about five to six core areas. So. When we're sitting there in the exit conference and they're going through the core areas and at the end saying, and we have no recommendations, and as we get to like the fifth area, we know there's like one more area left, we say, we have no recommendations. We're all looking at each other, you know, because our expectation is there's always going to be recommendations because there's no perfection. No one's perfect. We're not perfect, certainly. Um, And they understand because they know we're we're all doing other things and also trying to do this other thing. And so it was unbelievable. The county was very impressed. Everybody was impressed. And we were like, damn, what kind of standards have we now set? <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. That's, a, that's like uh, being, a, being a rookie in the league and going undefeated your first year. So um, we'll see what happens. So they're coming in again. Our three-year accreditation expires in October, but they're coming in early and uh, to resurvey us again. This Thursday and Friday. It's going to be a digital survey this time. It won't be coming in in person. But so, you know, the last couple of days beforehand, so, you know, stress levels are getting a little inflated. The, the stress is mounting. And this is, a, this is kind of a unique situation. And I don't know if this is, um, if this is a direct result of... COVID or the aftermath of COVID, or if this is just something new altogether. Um, but generally, they're on site for the uh, every every review that I've been a part of. Um, they've always been on site, and so they'll come and you'll give them a tour in person, and you get to shake their hand and have a conversation with them, and it's a little more personal. Um, and, and then the review and the audits and everything like that happen on site, and this is the first time again where I've been a part of a remote survey so they're actually um, you know going to be getting like a video tour of the facility and we're going to be um, electronically um, sharing information with them that they need to review and things of that nature which I think um, you know who knows if it'll be maybe it'll end up being great um, and make things a little more smooth maybe it won't uh, hard to say because I've never been a part of one but it's definitely a new element yeah the term for it they call it's a digitally enabled site survey DESS so we'll see how it goes and we'll report back of course uh, the results um, I mean, we fully expect to get another three-year accreditation. Whether or not we'll get a perfect score or not is another question, but um, we'll see. With that said, Mr. Producer, I want to just go right in. I I want to talk about this 30-day residential, because that's all we've been talking about. (laughs) Sure, yeah, let's let's dive into it. I'm, I'm ready. So, in a nutshell, it's terrible. (laughs) that's the end of the show Uh, we will be with you guys maybe sometime after the holiday season (laughs) it is absolutely terrible now of course we're adapting and adjusting 
and all of that. But it is what I thought it would be in a sense that those of you who remember your experience in the entry unit of Daytops in Far Rockaway and what that was like. And it was kind of an interesting experience because, you know, different things were all, multiple things were going on in that facility at the same time. Not the least of which was it's serving as the entry unit for people coming in off the street, literally and figuratively, and this is their, their first foray into what Daytop is and the therapeutic community lifestyle. And so you have all of us, you know, fresh out of our addictions and, you know, hearing all of this new information, this new data, if you will, and seeing people who were there a week longer than you, two weeks longer than you, three weeks longer than you, and all of them, and then people who just came in the day after you, everybody behaving differently based on how new they are. And obviously... Someone who's there two weeks, three weeks, four weeks is playing a different role than someone who just came in yesterday. And the therapeutic community relies, even in the entry unit, of those people who are there two weeks, three weeks, four weeks to be mentors to those people who just came in yesterday. That's the only way it will work because there's not enough staff in the world to be able to, for staff to be the quote-unquote mentors of everyone in the entry unit. It's not possible. It's not possible in the entry unit. It's not possible in a regular program. So the way the therapeutic community works is that it relies on older members, older in time, and sometimes older in age, too, older in life experience, to mentor those newer residents along and teach them what's acceptable, what's appropriate, what's not, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And our first experience with that is in the entry unit. And then it gets magnified when you go from the entry unit to the long-term residential facilities. Because now you have people that are there three months, six months, nine months, 12 months. So there's a significant amount of filtering down direct and indirect mentoring that's taking place. And when you're talking about 150, 200 people or more, 230 at Swan, 190 at, you know, 250 at Swan Lake and it'd be 230 at Parksville, that's a lot of people. Right, right. So just the mass of the, of the numbers, but it kind of makes sense because if you think about it, you'll have 30 people at any one time that's on orientation. And so you need that number of people that are kind of up 
upper pair, middle to upper pair, to overwhelm them so that the, those behaviors they're bringing up from the entry unit are almost like squashed, like suffocated. So they don't even get a chance to breathe those behaviors because they're being jumped on by anyone and everyone. And, and that's, how, that's how they're able to keep order. Yeah, I was going to mention uh, for, for those listeners out there, anyone who may uh, look at the archives from time to time and listen to some of our old podcasts, you know, we did a whole series on the trimesters of treatment, right? And even in that, our trimesters were what they are traditionally for a TC model, you zero to three months, three to six, six to nine. Um, and so you can imagine trying to, and, and we covered the dynamics very clearly of each of those trimesters and then the TC generally speaking and how it's necessary for the TC's functionality to have a mix of all clients of different trimesters. And so anyone who wants to go back into the archives, you listen to that, you'll understand just how important it is to have um, those in the third trimester and you can't keep it unless you give it away and they're bringing in the people from the first trimester. Well, now imagine a, a wholly contained facility program where all of the clients are in the first trimester. There is no second trimester. There is no third trimester. And on top of that, those in the first trimester are in the, the first trimester of the first trimester meaning you don't even have the, the 30 to 60, the, the, the two-monthers or the three-monthers, this 30 days. So you have basically everybody coming in, everyone who is having an experience in the program is at the very beginning of the first trimester, and now you're, now you're almost looking to break it down into weeks, whereas in a traditional model, three weeks in uh, – you know, you might you might just be starting to uncross your arms and group, and uh, you you might just be starting to listen to somebody. Um, and and now in this model, that person is your coordinator for the day. And keep in mind, in the daytop entry unit in Rockaway, the one thing that they had that we don't have is. Remember I said that that building served a multitude of purposes. So you had, it served as a reentry building for people coming down from the upstate facilities. Um, yep. And so you had people at um, long, long-term levels of recovery in and around the building all the time. And so it wasn't just the entry unit on the first floor in the dining room in the living room area so on and so forth there were a lot of people down there and the majority of them had a, a decent amount of recovery time under their belt so they had access directly indirectly to people who could mentor them pull them up and so on and so forth and so it, it allowed for there to be order it wasn't the blind leading the blind down there there were a lot of people around not just the staff of which there were only one or two on a particular shift. It wasn't like they had five and six people. Right. You know what I mean? So um, everything was reliant on the older, the middle to older members in, in trying, you know, filtering information down, mentoring and keeping order. So here we are when we 
when the clock strikes one on January 1, 2022, one thing we were we knew was that all of the clients who were in the program at that time were were remained on whatever their current path was. And then anyone new coming in after January 1 was going to be on a 30-day track. So those clients who came in January 1 to January and February still had the benefit of, quote-unquote, older members to pull them in, show them the ropes, and so on and so forth. But once those older members, and I'm using older members in air quotes because they're not, they're not our traditional seven, eight, nine-month older members, right? These are people who are two months and three months in the house, okay? But once they transitioned out, and we got our full first crop of everyone was 30 days or under, that's when the reality hit home. So I remember, I believe it was sometime in March or April, I sat down with the family in the residential facility on a Friday afternoon to kind of explain to them this, this concept of how what they're experiencing. Like, so what were we starting to hear? Uh, a lot of um, bickering, uh, a lot of griping back and forth on the floor, uh, a lot of reacting and stuff, so on and so forth. So I sat them all down and I said, you know, all this stuff that you guys are doing normally wouldn't happen. And the reason it wouldn't happen is because normally in the past there would be older members who would be pulling you up who would be squashing all that in the bedrooms, talking to you, mentoring you, and so on and so forth. It wouldn't be you, a 15-day member, trying to teach a three-day member or a three-week member trying to teach a one-week member. That's normally not what happens. Not that it's not possible, but... That's normally not the way it goes. I said, so what you guys are going to experience is a little bit different. So, yes, and I didn't say this to them, but we knew behind the scenes that obviously it's going to require more staff involvement because we kind of have to, to the best that we can, take up that space, that mentoring space, um, being more present because you don't have the older, older members to rely on. Um, to hold the house down and, you know, keep order and so on and so forth. And obviously you're not going to be, <laughs> you're not going to be turning your back on a two-week member. Right, uh, right, right. Next thing you know, there'll be crack dealing happening out of the, uh, out of the, you know, <laughs> supply closet. <laughs> exactly. So we don't want that. So, it, you know, it's, it, it's definite, it was a definite and still is a definite adjustment in a way of doing things and adjustment for the staff, obviously. Um, now, another obvious thing is the clients don't know what they don't know, meaning like this is they're only experiencing what they're experiencing. They can't speak to what it was in the past. They weren't here, so they, there's nothing for them to compare it to. All they know is this is what their residential treatment or intervention is, if you will. Um, I, I only wanted to explain to them because a lot of their frustration was with 
the 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 interactions that were going on between all of this natural and normal for people who are 30 days and under. Right. They're, they're going to beef with each other. They're going to rub each other the wrong way. They're going to be reacting. Their tone is going to be out of whack. All of that stuff is normal, natural, and appropriate. The difference is, is that normally there's other clients around or been around a little bit, been around the block, who helps them through that. Walks them through that, squashes a lot of that stuff, pulls them up on bickering and whatnot, kind of holds their hand through encounter group. So even the encounter group, one of, if not the most important group in the residential setting, I remember it was once described to me, and I've taken that to use as my description for it, the encounter group, the pressure relief valve of the therapeutic community. So even that has to evolve a little bit. You know, every two or three or four groups, the group has to be a teaching group. This is the purpose. This is how you do it. This is how you interact in the group, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, whereas in what would you do as a new member coming in before? You would, you know, you'd sit, you'd watch other, you know, other other members, family members participate in the group, and you know, that's how you would learn. You'd see what they do, see them dropping slips, you know, talk to them about, you know, dropping slips and how to, you know, respect your feelings and so on and so forth. You have to, have to kind of teach them that in a different way. So it's definitely uh, an assessment. Um, for the staff team. So you have them, and for the clinical team, it's an, it's an adjustment because now, even, just so you guys understand the the length of stay clock, we went from a 12-month program down to a six- to nine-month program then to just a six-month program, then three to six months, and then a 90-day, three-month program. And we were a 90-day program for, you know, three years or something like that, and before we kind of got wind of the 30-day thing coming down the pipe. And each time, obviously, there's an adjustment, but even at the 90-day mark, there's enough time for the clinical team to start to get underneath some serious issues. You know what I'm saying? Yep. You, could start, you could start to open the door, start peeling the onion back a little bit, and so on and so forth. Obviously, when it, when it was longer term, you didn't have to worry about a continuation plan. So, okay, we peel the onion back one-third. We want to continue this, so we got to kind of map out a plan for how when you go to your next stage of treatment, how that can continue with your next clinician and so on. But obviously, when a person is only with you for 30 days, you, you can't start peeling the onion back. You can't start opening people up like that. Uh, now, for, next- for, for, for those listeners who, who are not super familiar with our field or the kind of the organic or natural timelines for a client, zero to 30 days are the first 30 days – 
could, is generally, I mean, what you might call a, a healthy or, a, or an elongated detox. I mean, and if you visit a detox or if you're familiar with that setting, um, that is, there is nothing treatment-based there. It's, it's almost medical in nature in that, you, you know, we're, we're treating or not even treating, but a detox center is overseeing the client as they go through the physical um, and maybe emotional challenges that come with a detox, an, an actual detox, and then working on placement into a program. So, uh, you know, that, that time frame is generally good for, for a detox and not much else. Yep. We used to say, especially for the methamphetamine users, it was 90 days before the, you know, all the cobwebs are cleared out. They're sleeping normal again, eating normal again. And now, you know, their brains can absorb the information and also they can now clearly, literally speaking, clearly participate in the clinical aspects of treatment. So for them, it's even longer than 30 days. So, yep, you're right. So be just about. So what I did, and I, I think we spoke about this in our last, um, is said, let's try and do just what Daytop did in New York in, in the in the entry unit. What did they focus on? You come in. Let's let's get some food in you. Start getting you eating and sleeping right. Let's just worry about that. Um. Start, you know, spoon-feeding you some information, some data, right, all in preparation for the long-term treatment modality. And to be, you know, going up to the long-term treatment facility. And so for us, that's going to the recovery residence and the intensive outpatient modality where the bulk of their, their treatment now takes place. So we've tried to set up the 30-day program similar to that and um, let that be the experience. So it's to me, it's now a, a misnomer to, quote-unquote, call it treatment because it's mostly an education, an introduction, yep. a... Um, start eating, start sleeping, um, get the medical. And this is kind of where we, we had a little conflict in terms of normally, folks, we, we don't want clients in the residential program leaving the facility for a number of reasons. So, Mr. Producer, when... When you left Far Rockaway and you went and, and you were rotated up to the upstate residential facilities, once you got there, you were there. The only time you left is if you had medical appointments, legal appointments, what have you, downstate in the city. And, yep. you know, the van would, you know, just like how we do, you know, the, the dispatch organizes all of that and, but, you know, you wake up at some obscene hour of the morning and the van leaves at some obscene hour of the morning. I don't, I don't remember what, 5 a.m., 5.30 a.m. 
because it wants to get wants to be in Manhattan by eight thirty nine o'clock, so you can make your appointments and whatnot. And then usually you then have to take public transportation back to Far Rockaway, where the van would then pick you back up and everybody else back, and then. You have dinner at Far Rockaway, and then the van would take you back upstate, and you'd get back home upstate somewhere around 9 o'clock in the evening, somewhere around there. But that's the only reason you would leave is if you had medical appointments or legal appointments and so on and so forth. And so it's similar here, obviously. We don't want people leaving the facility, but if they ha- and so, but if Dr. O'Neill says, you know what, they need to have this looked at. It can't wait until they get into intensive outpatient. It has to be addressed right away. Um, other than that, we do whatever we can to make sure that they're, they're not leaving the facility so that they get as an intense as possible intro to the recovery process and without, you know, missing any days because they only got, you know, a limited number. Now, the one thing that did change is prior to this, in California, your number of treatment episodes were capped at two in a 12-month period. So if you came into treatment, you were there for a week, and you split, and three months went by, you cry, I want to come back, and you come back, and you stay for three weeks, and you split, California was not covering you for another treatment episode until 12 months had passed from your first treatment episode. Yep. So, they, so they've done away with that. Now there, there's no cap at all on how many treatment episodes a person can have within a 12 month period, which is a good thing. Um, but one thing I still don't know, Mr. Producer, is other other than every other state was this is what every other state was doing. If there were any other things behind the scenes under the rocks as to why the push to go to a 30-day. And by the way, they're always correcting us. They don't say it's a 30-day. They say it's an average of 30 days. Yep, yep. Whatever whatever that means. So I don't know if there are other factors that they were looking at. Cost, but changing to 30 days doesn't change any cost. But um, So I don't know, but... So far, we've been doing it for eight months, and one thing that did happen, which we predicted, is because people are turning around quicker, they're leaving the residential facility faster and going into lower levels of care, intensive outpatient, outpatient, and we knew this may happen, but we didn't know it would happen this quick, that we, there, there was a possibility that we would reach our cap in the intensive outpatient program. Right, right, which we reached blazing fast. Right. And then we had to scramble to try and find other, other referrals, which were very difficult because – Many, if not all, of the programs in our county are still under their own quote-unquote COVID protocols, so they're operating at reduced caps. 
and then tied with some staffing shortages. So basically there was no place to send these folks. And so we kind of figured out our own workaround, but they were obviously coming out of residential much quicker than than people are going to be outpatient. People stay in the outpatient modality much longer, significantly longer than they are, even when it was 90 days. Right. And they're going to stay in the residential. So I don't know how that is going to end up fixing itself because it's it's a problem that's bigger than our common ground. Um, we can just fit, try to massage it, if you will, within our own program. Um, but if we're capped, we're capped. And, and we're capped strictly because of the, the availability, uh, staff availability, meaning we only have a fixed number of clinicians and there's only a fixed number of clients that they can that each clinician can serve and you know we do the math and there's our cap of the number of right. clients we can do in the program at any one time right and and we have never prior to this year we've never hit our max we've always had a like what a three to five slot cushion. Yeah, yeah, it's right. a, yeah. Max being twenty four, you might you might sniff twenty one, twenty two at some points, but you're generally hoovering around nineteen. Right. And now we're. I mean, yeah. Not only have we hit the max, we're riding. We're riding it. Right. So, so like, like we're now to... like we now have clients in our own residential program who would like to come to our intensive outpatient program, but we don't have the space, and we're having to find other outpatient programs for them. That has I'd never think I'd see that day. So we don't know how that's going to fix itself. Um, I think if I would presume or hope sometime in the near future all the all of the other um, outpatient programs will open up back to their pre-covid capacities if you will um not necessarily that it's going to fix the staffing shortage that they're experiencing because um, that's also part of it um number of programs are limited staff and so they 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 can only serve but so many clients because of it <clears throat> And also, and, and probably important for people who, who listen to us to understand, uh, of course, those folks who know we're in the Bay Area know about it. Those folks maybe who do not. Yes, yeah, so we're located San Mateo County Peninsula, San Francisco Bay Area. Um, the cost of living is one of the highest in the country. And so uh, to speak to the, the, the stabbing, the staffing issue that uh, the host was just speaking about, um, you know, there's a number of variables that add to the staffing issue, but one certainly just being cost of living. And this is not a um, this is not a field, right? Human services, generally speaking, it, it is not a field that we operate in to get wealthy. Um, and so, um, staff who have to work for us, um, but then also have to live in this area, it presents a very unique challenge. Yep. 
And just to go off on a little tiny tangent, and our board has said, um, has committed to doing whatever they can do to make sure that our staff and I'm not, I'm not, um, what's the word here? <clears throat> this is not a brag or a boast. This is a, a just is. Our board said about five years ago, we, we you know, what's the, what's the consumer price index in San Mateo County? It hovers around high threes to four, low four, four percent. And so normally the cost of living in, uh, most people are getting is 2%, 3%. We've been giving six. Trying to offset escalating cost of living going back to 2016, 2017. When it, that's when it kind of really started skyrocketing. Yep. And uh, no, no one is doing that. People are going on strike for 2%, 3%. Yep. And the board has said, no, we want to do whatever we can do to hang on to the staff that we have at the very least. So that's the commitment that they've made. Right. But now you throw inflation on top of it, so there you have it. <laughs> right. <laughs> right, exactly. Before you know it, the staff will be checking into the 30-day program. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, the uh, – so the staffing shortage issue that programs are experiencing has variables attached to it that I don't know how that's going to end up, manif- you know, fixing itself – and then throw on top of it programs that are still, you know, in, in let's say, uh, high-level COVID functioning protocols. And we're not. We, you know, we've, we've, we've gradually come down, 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 while maintaining our standard, standard precautions and all that stuff. Um, and obviously, we were the only program in the county that did not close or stop accepting people during the from starting from March of 2020, when when COVID first hit. So, ultimately, we don't know how that's going to fix itself. So, the uh, the outpatient program is probably going to remain at that high number. Give or take one or one or two. We've gone over, like for example, if you guys know that there's going to be a, a discharge coming up in a week or two, you know we might go over one or two on the cap because we know that there's a discharge or two coming right in a week or two. We might do that, but and. For those of, you know, for our Daytopians, because when I first came out, <laughs> when I first came out here and they told me how many people were in the program, I was like, what are you talking about? I have more people on that, people, have more people on my caseload than that. Right. 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 program. 
But fast forward 30 years, and, you know, when you are on a drug medical, which is Medicaid funding, those who don't know, each state calls it something different. For California, it's drug medical. Um, the the amount of documentation that's required is what limits the number of clients a clinician can have on their caseload. Because it is not physical possible just not possible. Now, they call themselves, Mr. Producer, doing documentation reform that went into effect July of this year. And in the immortal words of Mark Tentrip, <laughs> it seems to me that all they did was just shuffle papers around. Oh, man, yeah. Yeah, precisely. And in, and in some instances, make the current process worse. When, I, when someone uses the word reform, what I want to hear, what I want to see is, you know what, you don't have to do that anymore, you don't have to do that anymore, you don't have to do that anymore. I want to see stuff coming off. Not stuff being <laughs> right. reshuffled, you know, and, and dressed up as some, called something else. You know what? I'm going to give you an example, folks. They, they made a big deal out of programs no longer have to do treatment plans. They're like, really? All they have to do now are problem lists. <laughs> <laughs> yep. We're like, okay, we're looking around to see who the idiots are because I don't care what you call it. You can call it a treatment plan, a problems list, a problem statement, you know, what are some other words they use? It's yeah, all documents. the same. <laughs> it's all the same thing. No more yeah, treatment and, and, plans. All, all you got to do is a problems list. Well, if you look at the problems list, what is it? Stuff that would go on the treatment plan. Exactly. And one of our issues, and I'm sure other programs would encounter this too, as we stated at the beginning of this episode that we've got CARF coming, is even if a problems list in theory is shorter than a treatment plan, uh, we do CARF it. requires us to do treatment plans, so we have to keep doing them anyway. And the feds, because we still receive some federal money, we still require it. So they haven't figured out how they're going to get around that yet. Um, so if you don't receive any federal block grant, substance abuse treatment block grant money, then you don't have to worry about it. Or you're not accredited or certified by an independent body, you don't have to worry about it, I guess. But if you are, you know, kind of answer to multiple masters, if you will. We'll see how the state gets around that. But long-term, long-term, this is looking long-term, Obviously, they're not going back. It's, you know, the 30-day stay in residential is going to, going to stay. Um, what I do envision, though, is that the language will change because, to me, it doesn't make sense to call it residential treatment because it's more like an orientation. It's more like an intro, a preparation for treatment, if you will, um, treatment readiness versus true residential treatment. Correct. Yeah, you're inpatient, but 
you're not getting the full thrust of it because you're just hot off the streets. And even if you come out of custody, still trying to learn the, the treatment vernacular and the rules, the regs, the you know, all of that stuff, the appropriate behavior for the environment, because what you do in jail, you can't do here, stuff like that. So there's still an adjustment, and it takes time for people to adjust their thinking, their behavior, and other aspects of their being um, to kind of conform to the treatment environment. In 30 days, it's just not going to happen. So, Mr. Producer, our job is to adapt and uh, figure out how to make it happen the best way that we can. Um, and we're still in, that, still in that evolutionary period of seeing what's the best way to make it happen. Yep. 30-day residential. Who would have thunk it? Couldn't have seen this one coming myself. I know there are some old-timers no longer with us turning over. (laughs) And consider consider this. All, all, A-L-L, all of the studies say the same thing. That the longer a person is in treatment, the better the outcomes. And I think we mentioned in our last show that the California model is our model. Too bad we didn't, uh, what is it, trademark it or copyright it? Yeah, right. it is, yeah exactly. It, it, is, it is the OCG model, which is intensive outpatient with recovery residents. Right. That's the model right. that, they're, that they're going to. Um, their problem right now, though, is that there's just not many recovery residences. Number one, like in our county, there's only two, and none for women, which in this day and age you would think is like, how, how is that continuing, that there are no recovery residences, even just one, even a six-better for women? I don't know how they're getting away with that, but it's not, not our problem, but... Um, We'll report back. I think the one-year mark, not that that's when we're going to be next reporting back, but um, because normally with this change, like the state will look at, UCLA does all of the state's research, will look at it one year in, send out all kinds of survey nonsense to us to get our opinions from all the programs, residential programs, and... We'll report what we experienced. Yep. So, Brutally honest. That's all I got, Mr. Producer. All right. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting, interesting topic, and it will be fun, and, and we will, you know, whenever we do our next show, um, be sure to kind of follow up on this if there is any follow-up and report back on how things are going or if anything looks like it may be changing, give you our CARF accreditation update. We'll either be celebrating or licking our wounds, and um, that'll be that. But, yeah, it's, it's been great to get on the air again. 
Uh, we love whenever we're able to provide content for you all and give you all another episode. So this was uh, definitely enjoyable. And, um, you know, we hope, as always, that everyone stays safe and, and has productive and healthy and fun few months ahead of them. And uh, if we don't talk to everybody before the holiday season, uh, we hope everybody has a happy holiday season. We will catch you all on the other side. That's our show for this evening. Thank you for listening. Be sure to listen to our next broadcast Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG radio. Like us, friend us, and follow us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash OCGWorkCA and on Twitter at OCGWorkCA. You can listen to podcasts of all our shows on iTunes under Roach on Recovery or on our Blog Talk Radio homepage. This has been a presentation of OCG Recovery Radio. Until then, baby, are you good?